Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 is where I'll be reading from. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. You can also uh, find it uh, on the screens uh, in a minute. We have one more Colossians sermon. Next week will be our last sermon on Colossians. And then after that, we're going to have a summer series uh, from the book of Proverbs. We're going to talk about... um, Things like wisdom and uh, friendship and parenting and uh, the fear of the Lord and uh, how we use our tongues and things like that out of the book of Proverbs. And so that's going to be a great summer series. But one more sermon next weekend on Colossians. Uh, In this section of Colossians, uh, chapter 3, Paul is beginning to make a turn in his letter And he's going to reference back to something he said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. And so that's where we'll begin. So if you're willing and able, would you stand? And we'll give our deference to the word of God. Follow along as I read for us. Hear God's word for you this morning. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Verse 2, verse 12, first. Uh, Paul says, You were buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You were buried with Christ, you were raised with him. And then he says in 3 verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, But Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and minds and hearts to see Jesus this morning. Um, Would you uh, help us uh, to grow in his likeness, we pray, amen. All right, you may be seated, please. What is the vision for your life? What is the vision for your life? Do you have a vision for your life? I was talking to a young guy recently who is in the middle of a career change, and he is going to uh, WTI to um, learn how to do uh, HVAC. And I told him, you know, that's awesome. That's great. We, we need more trades workers, right? We need people who know how to do HVAC, especially in Florida, right? We need people who know plumbing and welding and carpentry, not only because it's good pay, but because um, you're blessing your community through what you do. And what he said to me struck me. He said, um, young people my age don't want to learn a trade because they want to be social media famous. They want to be an Instagram influencer. Right? That's their vision. What's your vision? The vision for the life that our American culture puts forward is material comfort and personal happiness, ease and affluence. For some, the vision for their life is maybe physical health or success in your career or power. And some aren't sure that they even have a vision for their life. But if you're a Christian, then the the critical question, the most important question is not so much what is your vision for your life, but what is God's vision for your life? What is his vision for your life? And thankfully, we don't have to be left guessing about what that is. The Bible uh, is actually very clear and consistent on that. It's reinforced in the passage that we just read. God's vision for your life is your holiness. God's vision for your life is your holiness. Now, I know that when I say that word holiness, immediately I'm behind the eight ball, right? Eyes begin to glaze over because when you hear the word holiness, likely what comes to your mind is something like this. Picture. There we go. When, when you think of holiness, you think of something like that, right? Um, something drab, something uptight, something boring. You think of joyless duty, but that's not what holiness is at all. In fact, holiness is the exact opposite. Um, at least the way that the Bible describes it. What is holiness? Holiness is simply and profoundly Christ-likeness. Holiness is Christ-likeness. 
Paul says multiple times in his letters that God's vision for us is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to become more and more like Jesus. I love uh, watching The Chosen, and um, one of the reasons I love watching it is because I find myself when I'm when uh, you know at the end by the end of the show, I found myself almost always moved, right? My affections um, stirred up, uh, tears in my eyes, and why is that? I think it's because I'm seeing the holiness of Jesus portrayed, right? I, I'm, I'm seeing His gentleness, His kindness, His patience, His beauty, uh, and it moves me. Um, the holiness of Christ is a it's a beautiful thing. Um, what do you think of when you think of holiness? Michael Reeves, an author, writes this. He says, what do we mean by that tricky word, holiness? Now, anyone can use the word, of course. But without Christ, holiness tends to have all the charm of an ingrown toenail. For very simply, if holiness is not first and foremost about knowing Christ, it will be about self-produced morality and religiosity. God is not interested in our manufactured virtue. He does not want any external obedience or morality if it does not flow from true love for him. He wants us to share his pleasure in his son. Nothing is more holy than a heartfelt delight in Christ. Nothing is so powerful to transform our lives. I've always been struck by what um, Robert Murray McShane said, he was a Scottish uh, minister in the 1800s, and uh, McShane said, as a pastor, as a minister, he said, the greatest need of my people is, and then how, how would you have finished that statement? The greatest need of my people is, or the, the greatest need of my family is, the greatest need of my children is, the greatest need of my spouse is, the greatest need of my coworkers is, the, the greatest need of my neighbors is. McShane said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. The thing that they need the most is my personal holiness. Um, is that your vision? God's vision for your life is your holiness. Paul said, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things in the earth, meaning have the same vision for your life that God has, becoming more and more like Jesus. Yearn for it, long for it, deeply desire it. Having the right vision changes everything, doesn't it? So this morning, what I want is just to collectively catch a vision for holiness, a vision for the beauty of Christ, into whose image we are being renewed. So grab your sermon outline. It's on the inside cover of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Holiness begins by filling in every one of those blanks perfectly. All right, first, a vision for holiness, the already. A vision for holiness, the already. Why should you even care about holiness? Why does holiness matter? I mean, why not just live however you want? 
Here's something you might have been thinking. If you were here last week, then you heard Ray talk about legalism. And he said that you are accepted and loved through Jesus' obedience, not through your obedience. Two weeks ago, you heard Adam say, you don't have to try and make yourself presentable to God. You are already presentable to him. And then five weeks ago, the very first sermon on Colossians, I said, God is delighted with you, wild about you, regardless of how you behave. He loves you and likes you all the time, even when you mess up. So if those things are true, then why care about holiness? Why pursue holiness? If grace is really as amazing as you say, why should I care? And the answer is because if you've been truly converted, then a change has happened in you. Something is already true of you. Not one day in the future, it's true of you right now, and there is no going back. Um, Look again at Colossians 3, starting at verse 1. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I really want you to grasp this, really hear this. Um, Paul is saying something almost unbelievable about those who have put their faith in Christ and been united to him. Um, Our union with Christ, our relationship with Christ, is so comprehensive that the New Testament can say of us that which it says of him. Okay, Your union with Jesus is such that the New Testament can say of you that which it says of him. That's what Paul says, right? You died. You died. You were buried. You were raised. All past tense. All done. All completed. And one day when Christ appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Everything that is true of Christ is now true of you because Paul says your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In John chapter 10, maybe you remember, Jesus um, said, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. My, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I give them eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, because they are also in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's like this double grip of security, right? You are hidden with Christ in God, completely secure. That's who you are already. If you are in Christ, then nothing you can do, good or bad, can take you out of Christ. It is already accomplished Paul tells the Colossians, he says, you have already, past tense, you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have already, past tense, put on the new self. Uh, Or the way he says it in 2 Corinthians, he says, therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. At the moment of your conversion, you are a new creature. You cannot go back. You are God's chosen one, holy and beloved, not based on anything that you have done or will do, but solely based on God's grace. When you are already chosen, you can't be unchosen. When you're already holy, you can't be made unholy. When you're already loved, you can't be unloved. That's why you should care about holiness. That's why you shouldn't just do whatever you want because it would be inconsistent with who you now are in Christ. It's not who you are anymore. You're new. The famous um, preacher Charles Spurgeon once told a story about Augustine and, uh, and how Augustine had lived this uh, sordid life and, uh, but was converted. And after his conversion, um, a uh, woman that had known Augustine uh, beforehand and, and been a part of his, uh, his sinful uh, acts uh, saw him on the street as he was walking down the street, saw him and, and began to go after him and say, Augustine! Augustine, and, and, he, and he ran away and was trying to get away from her, and she said, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, to which Augustine turned around and said to her, yes, but it is not I. Right. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. You were buried with Christ. The old you is dead. But not only that, you have been raised with Christ, and now you are a new creature in him, right? The resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of you. You are chosen, holy, and beloved. So if all of that is true about us in Christ, then why do we still sin? Why do you still sin if that's true of you? You do still sin. You know that, right? Uh, you did probably on the way to church this morning. Um, I sin every day, every hour. Sometimes it feels like every minute. Why do we still do that if this is who we are? Um, the uh, Puritan uh, John Flavel wrote this. He said, for though grace has in a great measure rectified the soul and given it an habitual heavenly temper, yet sin often actually decomposes it again, so that even a gracious heart is like a musical instrument, which though it be exactly tuned, a small matter brings it out of tune again. Yea, hang it aside but a little, and it will need setting again before another lesson can be played upon it. My heart, my redeemed heart, is constantly going out of tune needs retuning um, to the song of grace. Why do we do it? Why do we, why do we sin? Well, it's what we call the already and the not yet. This is already true of us, but there's also something that's not yet. Uh, the best way to think of it is, uh, you remember when the uh, Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, and... Uh, and, de and defeated the, the Germans there and uh, took the beachhead. Uh, we call that day D-Day. Right? It was, 
It was then, in that moment, uh, at D-Day, that everyone knew the war was over. The war was over once that battle was won. But there was still lots of fighting that had to take place. There were still battles to go, right? Because uh, as the, the troops pushed through France and through uh, into Germany, um, pockets of resistance were still uh, warring. Uh, there was a, a passage of time, an experience between D-Day and what's called V-Day. Um, our salvation is already accomplished, D-Day at the cross, but not yet fully realized. The vestiges of our old self are still active in us, warring against us. And so growth in holiness means bringing your behavior into line with your new identity. Who we are by virtue of God's grace drives what we should do in accordance with God's word. Jack Miller said this, he said, since God has hidden your life in Christ, you can't really be any closer to Jesus, but you can live closer to him. Make fellowshipping with your Father and Jesus your highest priority and greatest delight. Live close to Jesus. So what does living close to Jesus look like? What does growth in holiness look like? We grow in holiness through a twofold process, one negative and one positive. We put to death, we put away, we put off the sinful behaviors and practices and tendencies of the old self, and we put on, we cultivate, we affirm the Christ-like virtues and habits and dispositions of the new self. Theologians call it uh, mortification and vivification. That's your million dollar words for the day. You can use those and impress somebody later. Mortification and vivification. We mortify that which is sinful. We vivify that which is Christ-like. So first, let's talk about mortification. Right? Mortification. Look again at what Paul says starting in verse five. He says, put to death. Therefore, the therefore is really important, right? Therefore, because of who you already are in Christ, now put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, not lying to one another. Paul says, put sin to death. Put it to death. Notice what he doesn't say, right? The apostle Paul doesn't say, um, flirt with sin. Be gentle with sin. Joke about sin. Ignore sin. Be indifferent to sin. Or try to keep sin under control, right? No, no, war with sin, right? Go to war against it. Do everything you can to root it out. Put it to death. John Owen, the Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sam Storms writes, he says, there is no ceasefire in our war with sin. There are no demilitarized zones to which we can flee. The flesh never takes a sabbatical. 
To live as if one might let down one's guard for a second is to recklessly expose one's soul to almost certain defeat. The sin that Paul lists in, in these uh, verses, uh, the, they're not exhaustive, these lists, but they are grouped under two main categories. There are sins of sexuality and sins of speech. And I don't have time to go through each one of these, but I want you to notice two things in general about what Paul says. One, Paul gives sexuality and speech equal concern. Paul gives sexuality and speech equal concern. Casual talk is just as potentially damaging as casual sex. So more liberally minded people should not dismiss the Bible because they think that all it harps on is sexual sins. And more conservative-minded people should not misread or misquote the Bible to make it seem like all it harps on is sexual sins. Paul says we should put all sin to death, not just certain sins. Second, notice about these lists. Um, In both of these groups, Paul lists not just external sins, but also internal sins. Right? Not just the outward expressions of sin, but the inward dispositions of sin. So not just sexual immorality, but also covetousness. Not just obscene talk, but also malice. Jesus said it's from out of the heart that sin comes. Right? Sin is ultimately a heart issue, not just a behavior issue. Uh, 400 years ago, John Owen wrote what is still considered today the most um, uh, significant and important book on uh, putting sin to death. It's called The Mortification of Sin. And in that book, uh, he gives nine instructions, and he fleshes them out in the whole book, but he gives nine instructions on how to put your sin to death. And I just wonder if you think this way, because I so often don't. He says, this is what you should do. Diagnose sin's severity. Grasp, one, grasp sin's serious consequences. Be convinced of your guilt. Earnestly desire deliverance. Consider the relationship between your sins and your natural temperament. Avoid occasions that incite sin. Address sin's first signs. Meditate on God's glory and don't rush to comfort yourself. M.D. Anderson is um, known as uh, one of the world-leading cancer centers. Uh, Their main uh, place is at the University of Texas, and um, uh, about uh, 13 years ago, uh, they launched a new logo that they then uh, rolled out over all of their campuses in Texas and in other places in the country, and... uh, and so I want to show you a video that, that, uh, that shows it. And I want you to think, as you think about this, this place that is dedicated to fighting cancer, I want you to think about the cancer of sin, okay, as you watch this. We were driving down Congress Avenue. All of a sudden, my wife screams out, there's cancer written on the wall. Let's go check it out. Every person I know has been touched in some way with cancer. You know, be it a friend of a friend or someone in your family. 
It was jarring to see the word cancer and I almost couldn't not stop here. I had to see what was going on. It's a vast crowd. There's at least a few hundred right now. So many people are showing up because cancer affects everyone. There's a giant word cancer painted on the wall and we're drawing a giant red line through it. I'm gonna go up there and I'm gonna paint a red stripe through the word cancer. I'll probably be teary-eyed a little bit. This is very meaningful. Having recently been diagnosed, walking up the stairs, seeing you know cancer and all its big boldness, and then being able to get that red paint was really empowering and moving. Cancer makes me very angry. Being able to come through today and draw a line against cancer is for us the end of our ordeal. It had a big impact on me painting the line and, and writing a note to my mom. I want it out of my life, I want it away from my family, and I just want it gone. Too many people say, oh, it'll never affect me. I went to the doctor for a routine checkup and walked out with cancer. We're drawing this line against cancer. We need to wipe it out and we need to really fight hard to find an answer. I want to beat cancer. I want cancer to go the hell away. To draw the line through cancer symbolizes the gratitude that I have to be alive. It gives me a feeling of hope, and it gives me a feeling of empowerment that I can maybe make a difference. It's very empowering to physically be able to paint over the word. It's actually taking a step and getting back at, at cancer somehow. So when you go to MD Anderson's campuses, everywhere you look where the word cancer is, they've struck a red line through it. And they're saying, I hate this. I don't wanna live with this. For the Christian, you take sin, and you take the blood of Jesus, and you strike a red line through it, and you say, this is not gonna be in my life. Right? I want this to be gone from my family. I want this to be gone from who I am, right? That's what it means to mortify sin, right? To, to put sin to death with the same passion with which um, they're seeking to end cancer. But Paul doesn't just say put sin to death. He also says positively put on Christ-like virtues. Okay, not, not just mortification, but also vivification, that is, holiness is not just the negative absence of sin, but also the positive presence of godliness. And so look again at what Paul says there, starting in verse 12. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul calls the Colossians to, and he calls us, to cultivate Christian character, to walk in newness of life. He uses the metaphor of clothing, right, to, to put these things on like you would put a uh, clothes on, like you'd put a jacket on. Uh, and uh, it says we are to, to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love. 
And in so doing, we are, we are putting on the likeness of Christ, right? Uh, his characteristics. Compassion is a deep concern about someone else's bad circumstances. Uh, one time, uh, Jesus uh, saw a crowd, right? And it says that Jesus felt compassion for them because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. The compassionate heart of Jesus. Um, kindness is the readiness to do good, even when such a response is undeserved by its recipients. Jesus showed kindness to the, strikes me, to the soldiers who came to arrest him, right? Uh, and uh, one of his disciples took out his uh, knife and, and cut off one of the soldier's ears, and Jesus said, put that away. And he took the soldier's ear and he healed the man. His kindness towards those who were, had come um, to arrest and kill him. Humility is a posture of lowliness and servanthood. Jesus humbled himself in the way he was born, but more importantly in the way he died, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? Meekness is being gentle, not easily provoked or irritated. Even when Jesus was mocked, hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And patience is endurance in the face of wrong or exasperating conduct. Jesus was so patient with his disciples, even when they uh, denied him and um, ran away from him. Uh, Jesus, so patient. Paul says, you are united to Christ, so put on the character of Christ. Put these things on. And when you fail, not if, but when, when you fail, then we are to forgive one another as he has forgiven us freely and fully. And as the principal virtue, the one underneath which all the others are just a subset, we are to put on love, agape love, the love of Christ himself. What if, um, what if there were two towns? And in one town, in this, in, this, in this first town, everyone in that town acted however they wanted to sexually. In this town, men and women were objectified. Prostitution was on every street. Children were regularly exposed to adult content. In this town, crime and drug activity go on with impunity. People are constantly discontent with what they have and have to have what others have. In this town, everyone lives on a hair trigger and walks on eggshells. No one trusts anyone else, not even one's own family members. In this town, every day you wake up, there is the possibility that someone would take out a full-page article in the newspaper saying the worst, most untrue things about you. In this town, there's lots of worship going on, but God is to be found nowhere. But then just a couple miles down the road, there's another town. And in that town, everyone is shown care and concern regardless of their situation. In this town, people seek ways to do good to one another, even when it doesn't benefit them. No one in this town thinks that they're the most important person. In fact, there are no celebrities or elites. In this town, failure is assumed, and there is always room for fresh starts and new beginnings. 
In this town, you hear a lot of laughter because no one takes themselves too seriously. People in this town are long-tempered, constantly assuming the best of one another instead of the worst. In this town, forgiveness is like breathing. People ask for it and give it naturally and regularly. Which one of those two towns would you rather live in? Which one of those two families would you rather live in? Which one of those two churches would you rather be in? You see, holiness is a beautiful thing. The leaders that our culture tells us we should look up to, which characteristics do they tend to embody? Which town do they seem like they live in? How sad it is when our leaders put on the things God says that we ought to be putting to death. And conversely, how beautiful and attractive it is when leaders lead with true holiness. You know, if I told you that um, Tim Keller wrote all these books and uh, started and led this huge church and uh, started all kinds of other churches and all over the world and did all of these things for God, but if you really knew him, he was a jerk. I mean, when uh, the way he treated his staff, um, if he just ran into you on the street and you were like, oh, hey, are you Tim Keller? He'd be like, get away, who are you? Leave me alone. Um, that, that when you were talking to him in the pulpit, he told truth, but when you were talking to him on the side, you couldn't trust what he said. And that uh, his integrity didn't match what was coming from out of his mouth. Would you still think he was a great man? I hope not. Because holiness matters. Character matters. And it's beautiful um, when it's there. I, f- I have a friend who lives in New York and who um, has gotten to know, uh, got to knew, know Tim over the years. And, um, you know, you always want to ask somebody like that, you know, get some cool thing because they, uh, they knew him, and, uh, and he said the thing about Tim was that he was real. He was the real deal. He was holy. He, he prayed the Psalms every day. Um, holiness is attractive and beautiful um, when it's played out in a life. John Owen, who's considered, uh, again, you know, the, one of the leading um, writers, theologians, uh, um, certainly on holiness, maybe on, uh, of all time. I mean, he was a great man. He, he was well-respected, knew the king of England. He was, uh, um, uh, you know, in the, the highest circles. And uh, when he was dying, he wrote a letter to his best friend named John Fleetwood. And uh, he wrote it through the hand of his wife. He wrote it the day before he died. And here's what John Owen, this great man, Said He said, I'm going to him whom my soul has loved, or rather who has loved me with an everlasting love, which is the whole ground of all my consolation. Not my love for him, but his love for me. The passage is very wearisome through strong pains of various sorts, which are all issued in an intermittent fever. And then he says, I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm. But while the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. You hear what he's saying about himself? I'm just a poor under rower. Jesus is the great pilot. 
Live and pray and hope and wait patiently and do not despond. The promise stands invincible that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And he says, I am greatly afflicted at the ailments of your dear wife. The good Lord stand by her and support her and deliver her. My affectionate respects to her and the rest of your family who are so dear to me in the Lord. In his dying day, right, he is caring about others, others suffering instead of his own. Remember your dying friend with all fervency. I rest upon it that you do so and am yours entirely. John Owen. You see these virtues that Paul says we are to put on, these Christ-like virtues, they're like superpowers. I don't know if you've ever wanted to have a superpower before, but these things, they're like superpowers. They have the ability to change and diffuse the most hostile environments. But how do we get that power? How do we get that power? That's the final point. You know, we want to live lives of holiness, but how does that actually happen? Where does the power come from to put sin to death and to put on Christ-like virtues? Where does that power come from? Paul tells us, starting at verse 15, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Hear this, the power to live like Christ comes from Christ. The power to live like Christ comes from Christ. Most people think that the way you grow in holiness is through disciplined self-effort, through strictly adhering to moral standards. The problem is there is no power in our mortification and vivification if it is apart from Christ. Um, when I grew up, there was this program in the public schools. It came out of um, an initiative started by Nancy Reagan. Uh, it, they were trying to fight against the rise of drugs and, and kids doing drugs. and. Uh, and she coined the phrase, just say no. Just say no. And uh, part of this program, uh, it was called the D.A.R.E. program, D-A-R-E. And D.A.R.E. officers were in like 75% of all public schools in the country. And they were telling kids the danger of doing drugs and how they didn't want that in their lives. Uh, and, and so just say no. Well, they did a study of the D.A.R.E. program. They found out that kids that were um, enrolled in the D.A.R.E. program had no significant difference in uh, doing drugs than kids that weren't. Why? Because just say no doesn't work. Just say no to sin doesn't work. Where are we gonna get the power? Um, Michael Foucault uh, was a 20th century French philosopher. He studied the use of the confessional in uh, Roman Catholicism uh, because he was fascinated by it, and he noticed how after the Reformation, the, the Roman Catholic Church really upped the use of the confessional. They thought that if we could get people really serious about their sin, confessing it regularly, that that, would, um, that, that disciplined self-effort right, would lead uh, to um, greater and deeper holiness. What Foucault actually discovered was that uh, people who uh, did the confessional regularly only came to identify themselves more strongly as sinners. The whole practice put the focus on the sin being confessed 
Through prolonged looking, they ended up binding themselves tighter to the very things they sought to escape. You see, confession is not a bad thing, but focus on self is not the secret to holiness. Where are we going to get the power? Michael Reeves writes this, he says, The more I know myself to be a true child of God, and the more I see of Christ, the debtor I find myself to sin. It still allures me, but not as it did. I find old sinful desires dying and new holy ones springing up. I found myself longing, yearning to be free of the sins I once held so dearly. I have a new heart, after all, the heart of a child of God, and it feels and wants differently. That is, it is the very grace of God appearing from heaven in Christ that turns hearts from worldly passions to godly passions. Where self-dependent efforts at self-improvement must leave us self-obsessed and therefore fundamentally unloving, the kindness of God in Christ attracts our hearts away from ourselves to him. Only the love of Christ has this power to uncoil a human heart. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And how does that happen? He says, through teaching and admonishing one another, through singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The primary way that it happens is through the means of grace, the simple means of grace and through what we're doing right now. In worship, we point one another to Christ. We, we sing to God with thankful hearts and the love of Jesus goes just a little bit deeper into my heart. I believe it afresh and I'm actually experiencing the Holy Spirit's power changing me, making me more like Christ in this very moment. Um, Spurgeon gives the illustration of how if you, if you wake up in the morning and it's snowed all night and the ground is covered in snow and the, the, the trees are covered in snow, he says, if you, if you hired a thousand men, a thousand machines to try and go and clear the snow, you'd never be able to do it. He said, but if you just wait for a few hours for the sun to rise then the sun will melt it all away. And then he says this, he says, where his blessed face beams with grace and truth as the sun with warmth and light, he dissolves the bands of sin's long frost and brings on the spring of grace with newness of buds and flowers. It's Christ, the love of Christ that warms and melts our frosted over hearts. How does Paul end this whole section of Colossians on holiness? He ends it by saying, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What is the vision for your life? God's vision for your life is your holiness which is another way of saying God's vision for your life is Christ. And so look to him, delight in him, let him love you and grow you more and more into his image. So we're gonna take the Lord's Supper um, this morning and uh, the kindness of God 
the simple kindness of God to give us just simple means of grace to, to grow us in holiness. Somebody after church said last night, is it really that easy? Is it really that simple? You just open your Bible and read it and look for Jesus. You just come to the table and take the supper. You just come to worship and sing. Is it really that simple? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Don't complicate it. It's really that simple. Just come get more Jesus. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.